0: In the future, certain skills will certainly be more valuable than others. And I I think it's not what everybody expects. Like for a long time, it was anybody who can code is good. Anybody who can't. TBD, we'll figure it out. But it's like, well, hey, AI is kind of coming for everybody. The more of life that moves online, the more we're all responsible for articulating like what, what our vibe is and, and people figuring out whether or not they vibe with that, that a- aspect. There are times when it would make sense to hire an investor. You don't actually like that investor very much as a person. Do a very specific job. The investors you want, you kind of act as like accountability advisors. How good are they at the job that you hired them to do? And if you hire a financial engineer to be your ideas person, they're going to really suck at it. I want to be the guy, like the person in the chair. You want to be the guy that the guy can count on.
1: Welcome back to season three of the Generation Hustle podcast. We are continuing our VC series in episode 96 with Kyle Harrison, general partner at Contrary. In this episode, you will learn on how to achieve investor founder fit, how storytelling drives the world, Contrary's investment approach, in a particular trend amongst tech unicorns that Kyle refers to as thinning the herd. He also details the downstream impact of the current tech layoffs, as well as his experiences on Harry Stebbings' podcast, 20VC. Kyle is one of the most prominent writers in the venture space today, sharing his thoughts at his blog, Investing101 2.0. Before joining Contrary, Kyle worked in some of the best names in VC, from TCV to KOTU to Index. Through all these experiences, Kyle's led or participated in investments, including Ramp, PAVE, Android, GitLab, Databricks, and Snowflake, just to name a few. So let's get right to it. Welcome back, everyone. Today we have another special guest, Kyle. How's it going? Doing good, man. Thanks for having me. Yeah, thanks so much for coming on. So one thing we always start off with is, you know, we chat about all things VC. But I want to really understand some of your early days because you don't really have that traditional path into VC. I would say you've took a pretty obscure way to get to kind of where you are today. And we'll also talk about your writing in a bit, which I thoroughly, thoroughly enjoy. So maybe chat about your experiences that led you down to the path of tech and eventually where you are right now at Contrary.
0: Yeah, happy to. I had a very, to your point, I had a very different uh, background. So when I got into undergrad, my original major was actually film. I was obsessed with Tarantino and Christopher Nolan, and I wanted to go to Hollywood and make movies. And. So to pay the bills, I was doing wedding videos, commercials, everything, and eventually got to the point where I had too many clients, uh, started farming them out, just very casually farming them out to other friends of mine who did videos. I'd take a percentage. I'd say, hey, I got you a job. Can I take a cut? And then eventually realized I was actually a lot better at getting jobs than I was at making videos. I was never a very good videographer. (laughs) And, And so pretty quickly... Transition to doing that full-time. So I'd, I'd go out and get jobs. And then over time, I would say, hey, not only can I give you a job, but I can help you with your bookkeeping. I can help you do your taxes. I can help you with your website and your marketing and stuff like that. And got to the point where I was sort of this business in a box for creatives, mm. to photographers, graphic designers, whatever. So I joke that I I ran a creator marketplace before it was cool. Um, you know, I mean, this this got started in 2010. Like it was not, you know, there's not a lot. Right, yeah, it's yeah. I you know. Um, And so over time, I I ran that business for about four years um, and ended up selling it. And that whole time, I never raised money. I never called it a startup like me and my wife joke. The whole time, I was almost embarrassed to tell my in-laws what I'm doing. I would call it a project. I I didn't have a vernacular for it. I was just doing something that I liked. And around the time that I sold my business, I was chatting with a friend and I said, I have no idea what I'm going to do next. And he said, what do you like? What did you like most about your company? And I said, well, I really enjoyed being this like resource for these passionate, creative people to be able to solve their problems and answer their questions. And my friend said, well, that's sort of what venture capitalists do. And I said, I don't know what those words mean. Right. Yeah. Uh, most people don't. Most people don't. <laughs> right. That's right. Especially not at this time, right? It was yeah. like not, I think venture is even more in the zeitgeist now than it was then. And so I, that was sort of my like backwards way into venture, just learning about it. Um, And then I kind of learned along the way, so I worked at a seed fund in Utah, I'd been running my company in Utah, worked at a seed fund as sort of my education, and then kind of ran full bore at uh, a bunch of different, worked at a bunch of different firms. I I kind of have this like Goldilocks experience of like, you know, very different styles of investing. And TCB was very private equity, CO2 was very hedge fund, Index was sort of venture classic. Yep. And so I saw a lot of different things. And along the way, I think I sort of zeroed in on this mantra that I try and have as an investor, where it's this idea. It actually comes from the West Wing. I don't know if you've ever watched that show. No, I haven't. Old, old political show, but um, the chief of staff, to so the president's talking to the president and the president says, you know what the difference is between you and me is I want to be the guy, like the person in the chair. You want to be the guy that the guy can count on. Mm. So in my mind, I sort of think of that as like actually like the perfect framework for an investor right. where I want to be the person that, you know, that for four years I was the person in the chair and I ran this company and I found much more satisfaction from finding somebody who was super passionate about what they were doing and being able to be the person that they could rely on. Right. So That's sort kind of shaped my perspective as an investor. and And the thing that led me to Contrary ultimately is I have always loved, like, it's, it's been very much a people-centric activity for me, right? Yeah. Like, it's not, I've, I'm candidly, like, I have never been driven by, like, the heat of the deal or the competition or the, like, relentless drive to win or whatever. Like, I want to find people who inspire me and be a resource for them. right? Contrary is literally the, the sort of tagline of Contrary is people-centric investing. Um, and so it was kind of the combination of both getting to both double down on people and, um, you know, I had been, I had spent eight years as an investor and I kind of felt this itch of like, I, what I really loved about running a company was I got to put my fingerprints on something, right? Is I was, this thing existed because I put it into motion and at big firms, like a Co Two or Index or whatever, like they're great, yeah. but you roll on with or without you. Right. right? Contrary is still very young, right? We just celebrated our fifth anniversary. Like we're just getting going and I have the opportunity to come in and build a new part of Contrary. And so that opportunity to, but simultaneously get to invest in people that inspire me, but also get to build something was sort of the opportunity of a lifetime.
1: Yeah. And, you know, drawing on some of your experiences from like the film days, has any of that like inspired your investment methods or kind of thinking or approach around investment? Because I always find it really interesting of individuals taking transferable skills from their passions and applying it to their kind of real life jobs, or kind of what they do. And so what's that kind of connection for you if there is one?
0: Yeah, it's funny you asked that. I just tweeted about this, like last night, I think this idea where like, as I was reviewing some of my old writing, and I think it was, I mentioned it too, in my piece this previous week, where if I were to boil almost everything that I've written down to like one core idea that keeps coming up again and again, it's this idea that, Storytelling is mm-hmm. the most powerful thing in the world, and um, like people can do just incredible things can be accomplished when people buy into a story. And there's this idea that like basically everything in the world exists because of a shared narrative, right? Like money doesn't actually exist; it exists yeah. because we all agree in this story. And governments and and like businesses, whatever, and C, like C corps, whatever. Um, and I and I think a lot of that like respect for storytelling actually comes from my love for filmmaking and reading and storytelling. Like I I see how much this passion can drive me to wanna do something or be better or whatever. And I think that that translates into company building um, where the, the more effectively you can tell a story and candidly like the more you can back it up with ADA and execution and things like that. But it really stems from this shared narrative of I'm going to create something out of nothing. That's a real superpower.
1: Yeah, no, I find that really interesting. And it's a funny point. Um, I was actually watching something the other day it was the TEDx talk, and they were talking about the tonality uh, around kind of how you present yourself with language. And so the guy was a compl- completely speaking gibberish, but the tones in terms of how he story told almost emphasized like, oh, wow, I'm actually drawn in. OK, he slowed down. So like to your point, storytelling has such a powerful effect on our attention. And in these days, like obviously attention is very limited. So your ability to kind of convey that in a very articulate but passionate way, I feel like is such a critical skill. And Minu, kind of going on to that, what do you define a good investor as? I know you alluded to uh, being a uh, partner for the founders. And obviously, you know, returns and performance are uh, definitely a critical thing we view. But what I'm seeing more of is a focus on communities, uh, a values-based driven investing uh, from the most successful investors today. So any kind of key success factors that you're seeing?
0: Yeah, I'm I'm working on a piece right now yeah. and I'm excited about it. Basically, it's this idea of like, what is an investor? Like I had a friend ask me, you actually, like it's a, somebody who is very like Warren Buffett disciple, value investor, you know, And he's like, can you honestly say that venture capitalists are investors? And it's like, well, what do you mean by investor? What do you mean by all these, like all these semantics sort of define what we mean. And my sort of takeaway as I have thought about it is I actually think different investors uh, are good for different things, right? I, Mm. I, I talk all the time about this, the Clayton Christensen framework about jobs to be done. And I think different investors have different jobs that you hire them for. And probably I think founders don't do a good enough job of thinking about it that way. Of okay. like, why am I hiring this person? Because you might actually there are times when it would make sense to hire an investor. You don't actually like that investor very much as a person. Yeah. Like, do a very specific job. The same way that like you'd hire a customer that you might not you might not hang out with that customer as a person, but you're solving a thing for them and you vibe together. And and so when I sat back and I thought about like what are the buckets and this this will be a big driver in the piece, and I'll sort of explore this a little bit more when I write it. But it's sort of this idea of like it kind of maps very closely, at least in the world of like startups and, and building. Mm is it maps very closely to what do you need at different stages? And I thought, of it, thought, of, thought about it at, in terms of five buckets. So the first one is like at the seed stage, you really, what you really want is somebody who is like an ideas engine. And yep. it's not just for them to come up with your business idea, but it's like, if you give me a business idea, as you know, the best seed investors I know, if you give them an idea where you say, hey, I'm going to build this. And it's like, you know what you should talk to is you should talk to so-and-so. And it's like, you should mm-hmm. really look into this company because they do this. And it's like, they're just ideas people. Like they're throwing things out there. It's your job as a seed stage founder to be able to figure out what ought to stick, but they are just there to like flow the conversation with optimism. Yeah. It's like, it's so easy to be like, no, that's stupid. This is stupid, whatever. What you need is just ideas. And it kind of progresses where you think about like, first you need an idea engine, then you want a talent magnet, right? This idea of your first hundred people are going to define the next thousand plus people right. higher. Do so you really want those people that can attract the highest quality talent then you really want an execution machine, somebody who knows how to build these engines on the go-to-market side, engineering productivity, as you expand to multiple products, multiple geos, like they know how to turn on those playbooks and stuff. And eventually, as you sort of approach this like pre-IPO stage, um, you, you actually kind of want a financial engineer. Like most people sort of crap on VCs who are whose background is like high finance and stuff.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah.
0: There is a point in time at which like you actually really need that because you have these very complex capital market mechanisms. Yep. And at Code2, that was a big part of our pitch is like most of us were sort of financial engineers and were able to help tell the story to the public markets. And and this also goes through into the public markets, right? Eventually when you are running as a public company, the investors you want, you kind of act as like accountability advisors. Like your largest investors in public markets keep you accountable. But those are like dramatically different people with dramatically different back. It's like not even instructive to compare them apples to apples. It's how good are they at the job that you hired them to do? And if you hire a financial engineer to be your ideas person, they're going to really suck at it. Like you right. need to really understand what you're hiring them for.
1: Yeah, no, I, I, I love that in terms of just the thought process around kind of, you know, early days, you're still kind of figuring out product market fit and all that. So your product's probably not established. You might pivot here and there. So the ideas person in terms of getting to that next stage is very critical And then once you kind of have that established, now you kind of want that go-to-market, that hiring to leverage that experience to get some of the execution. And last but not least, now you want to process and create those frameworks uh, to really enable you to get to that final stage, perhaps the IPO, right? So I actually love that and really will look forward to kind of reading that full full scope. So uh, let's name a few companies that you've actually been involved in. Um, So Ramp. Pave, which I, I, I love. We use that uh, at our company right now too. Uh, GitLab, which is very commonly used across most companies now too. So really, really well-established names. Um, how'd you get to know these founders? I, I, I think a lot of VCs um, who have, you know, this great, great um, kind of, uh, I'd say, experience and also these names backing them are traditionally known as you know, the leaders in the space or thought leaders, but your, your approach has always been the kind of personal, being personable. So how did you actually get to meet you know, founder of PAVE, GitLab? How did that all stem and like, how did you win those deals?
0: You know, like I said, I've been an investor now for, this is my eighth year as an investor. And, and in that time, I have filled different roles at different times, different firms have different approaches. I've been a junior investor that supports a partner. I've been the partner making investment decisions and every investment is pretty different, right? Some relationships run more deeply. Some have just like a few months before you end up, you know, getting together and investing and, mm. and some of you really connect on a personal level. And like I said, sometimes it is kind of transactional. where like the firm has something that that company needs and they get together. Like maybe they're not best friends, but like those things work together. Um, I think about it a lot as this framework of sort of investor-founder fit where, you know, what, what job, going back to this jobs-to-be-done idea, what job would a founder hire me for? What can I do well for them? And sometimes that has been a function of the firm that I'm at, right? You look at a company like, like GitLab. GitLab is a company that I wasn't as close. I didn't get to have as deep of a relationship with Sid and the team there as I would have liked, as exceptional as they are and as much as I've enjoyed studying them. Um, I didn't get as close to them because, again, I was at Co Two at the time, and one of the jobs that Co Two often got hired for was to help a company think about heading into their IPO. And so it's much more broad and it's, it's less less involved, right? Then you take a company like Pave, that's a much different story, right? Matt and I got to connect really closely. We'd have dinners together. We'd get to chat and talk, and and getting to see what Matt and the team at Pave are building. That was something that I like deeply resonated with. Like, I love this model of being able to take massive amounts of sort of abstract data and turn them into like a very operational asset. And Pave does that exceptionally well, right? Plat is a company that does that exceptionally well. Like, I love those companies. So I resonated with that. Matt and I got to know each other super closely. Like, that was a very different relationship. But I think in general, like, and this has been true of my experience, I think this will be true of most investors' experience is increasingly the reason that people uh, pick the investor that they work with can basically be summed up as vibes, right? Like it, it sounds kind of silly, but like the more of life that moves online, the more we're all responsible for articulating like what, what our vibe is and, and people figuring out whether or not they vibe with that, that a- aspect, right? Like I do that through my writing and my Twitter and even launching Contrary Research as part of Contrary, which we could chat more about if you're interested, but Contrary Research is a specific product that I have helped build within Contrary because that is the vibe that I want to, to give out, right? I want people to know they're like, hey, I am thinking about a lot of these companies very analytically. I'm trying to understand them across many different industries and categories. There's a demand for people on whether it's talent or whatever who want to understand these companies better. Like That's my vibe is I'm trying to articulate and understand. I'm kind of a student of this stuff. Not everybody has that vibe and that's okay. That might not be the thing that you as a founder vibe with.
1: Yeah. And so I guess based on some some of those value adds and as quote unquote vibes, you find the founders that kind of are attracted to that specific thing. And that's kind of how you match. And uh, I'm not sure if you're referring to the article written by Kaya. Uh, I think it was called Vibe Session or something like that. Um, I, I recently read that too. It's, uh, I, I totally understand what kind of where you're coming from. And so t- you, you mentioned... Uh, creating Contrary research. Like the inception of that, it was kind of related back to kind of your work and your passion. How has that kind of helped you guys maybe design better frameworks around investing um, and kind of supported those decisions across Contrary? So Contrary, to understand
0: the sort of Contrary wide wheel is how I think about it. And um, So Contrary takes a very unique approach to investing, like I mentioned, where we think about the evolution of venture being the sort of old school classic way of venture is very much like company-centric transactions. Like the bulk of what you are doing in terms of the relationship between the VC and the founder is you have a company, we have cash, we're giving you cash. Maybe there's a board member attached to it, but that's largely the focus. Like it has evolved to offer a bunch of different platform things and stuff, but at its core, it's still focused on that transaction with that company. And then you evolve to be a little bit more people-centric, right, when you have things like uh, Y Combinator that are a little bit more company-centric programs, like changes the medium but it still very much revolves around the company. Even if the company is very early, it's still revolving around, hey, we're taking this company through this program. Contrary, we see ourselves as sort of the V3 of venture where it is very much this idea of like people-centric communities strive to build these communities in everything that we do. And the way that we do that is through programs like we have our venture partner program that has, you know, at any given time, 100 plus students at the top universities and graduate programs in the country. Um, we have a talent fellowship where we identify the sharpest people uh, that have worked at a bunch of great companies. We have the research fellowship, which are folks who are specifically interested in, in being storytellers and articulating these company stories. We have all of these different programs, mm. but at, the, at its core, we're focused on building a community. Yeah, the value prop for Contrary and the way that we think about things like Contrary Research is we're basically we say to ourselves we want to identify the sharpest people in the world, and then support them relentlessly throughout their career. So what is everything that we can do? What are different products and, and features that we can add to Contrary's offering that will remain relevant even sometimes years before these yeah. companies? And it's things like having a pretty robust talent network where we can help them with uh, you know, job placement and comp negotiation, which is another reason we have a big appreciation for Pave, right? Yeah. All the way down to like having a space in New York where they can work out of as they start a company, co-founder dating to help connect them to other people in the community all throughout this process. And then where I come in, I lead our later stage effort. And so if we, ha- whether we have people who go and work at series A, series B companies, we want to go invest in those companies. That's, you know, a company like Ram, we, we helped uh, bring a lot of folks, the sort of early team to Ram. Mm. Being able to do that is sort of being able to not only say, Hey, Ramp is a great business. We're going to, that's going to be a great investment for us because they're a great company. But it's also a way to indicate to those people, hey, we have huge respect for you that if you're going to go work at this company, we want to invest in that company. Or right. if we go to a company and we say, this is an exceptional company, we want to help our community go work for this company. So we're constantly di- sort of dictating you know, the product offering that we have. And that is our vibe. And people decide if that's valuable to them or not. And for some people, like, if you're a, you know, forced time bounder that's just going to go hire the same 50 people you've brought into all your previous companies, that's great. We're probably not the best fit for you and that's okay. Yeah,
1: yeah. no, that totally makes sense. And I, it, it's, it almost feels like you guys have this, you've guys built this full suite solution or like this infrastructure to support the founder um, in ways that are critical, growth, execution, hiring, all that stuff and basically enable their success. And again, you're still doing the founder investor fit, which is a very critical piece of this. Speaking of being contrary, what is one view that you have in this world of VC that your peers would disagree with?
0: Yeah, I thought about, uh, I thought about this a fair bit. Um, and if you've read my writing, you'll notice that a lot of it is sort of as, as like a student of venture, uh, as a sort of art and science. But I think about this quite a bit. I think there's one view that You know, probably there are a lot of people. So it comes back to this idea when you think about people say that we know that 50% of our marketing budget is wasted. We just don't know which 50%. And I think that 50% of VCs are useless. Um, Like they don't actually justify their existence. There are a lot of firms that would say that, but they're not necessarily willing to ask themselves the hard question of which side of the 50%, like which 50% am I in? Like, is my product offering very good? I think that one of the things that the power dynamic of people with capital versus people building companies has created is this inflated perspective that VCs have of their own importance in this, in this life cycle. Yeah. yeah, yeah, the ecosystem. The word for it. Um, and I think that the reality is that whether it's you know their returns aren't actually good enough to justify the investment, like a lot of venture funds after fees, you would have been better off putting your money in an index
1: fund index like, fund yeah. yeah. There's no
0: more, right?
1: Yeah.
0: Or it comes back to this idea of, I, I think that every venture firm should have a very clearly articulated product. Most of them don't. And the reality is that, um, you know, they, they don't have a real actual value proposition. And so then because of that, at best, the companies they work with, like the the, the impact that they have on those companies is neutral. Like that company mm-hmm. is good with or without them, but they come along for the ride because they have cash. At worst, they have a negative impact on those companies, that there are companies that that actually would have done better than they did because they allowed VCs with bad products to be a part of their company. right? Um, and so I think that in everything, and it's tougher to do this when the world is shifting back and there's more power in the hands of capital allocators and things like that. I recognize that's going to be true. And I don't think that there's going to be this like mass death of venture funds in the next year. Like it's not Venture funds die very slowly, right? There's all these dynamics that allow time to persist and stuff. Um, but I do think that there needs to be a sort of awakening in venture, where people acknowledge and ask themselves: Should I actually exist? Not obviously, I want my firm to exist. Like every every VC wants to have a job, wants to have a whatever paycheck and everything. But it's really like: Are we doing enough to justify our own existence? And I think everybody, you know, if they ask themselves that question they'd come up with ways where they would say, you know what, I mean, even, you know, the, you know, Sequoia or whoever would come up with ways they would say, hey, there are aspects of this that we could do a better job of.
1: Right, okay. So kind of having that almost introspection on kind of how their fund is performing perhaps, or whether they're actually value adds in the ecosystem at this point. Um, and I, it's, it's something that I've talked to founders a lot about is, are these VCs actually just coming in just as a capital, a uh, form of capital and they're just allocation? Uh, on this fundraise or like what's their purpose and uh, just doing some research uh, you find that you know it, they just come from money it's uh, kind of like you know your typical set of VC structure if you want to call it that more PE guys if you want to uh, draw back to that conclusion but you know it's it's very interesting that you kind of talk about this awakening which brings us to our next point which you have an article that you just recently released called uh, thinning the herd um, so in it, you describe the current landscape of unicorns, which obviously over the last two years with valuations, you've seen quite a bit of them. So and you drew four key areas to focus on. So I'd love for you to kind of maybe highlight the topic at hand and help us understand those kind of four key areas that you drew some conclusions on.
0: So the framework that I use is basically asking the question of if a lot of these unicorns are going to fail, whether that's fail to live up to their unicorn valuation or fail period and and, and go out of business. And um, there are four things that I see as very likely to be contributors to some aspect of that failure. And um, so the first one is understanding investors experience. And I think that the, almost across the board the number one reason that a lot of companies couldn't raise money in 2022 and they, many of them won't raise in 2023 is because there's this dramatic misalignment between mm. investor expectations and founder expectations, right? Um, and I'm always surprised, and I shouldn't be because it's, I mean, different people have different jobs. Like this is, investor math is not something that founders need to be steeped in every day the way that investors are. But so often um, I see that founders don't, they're not necessarily thinking about it from the perspective of the VC. They're thinking about it from their perspective, right? So right. founders, they know the markets have tumbled. They know that things have, are not in a great place and there's struggle and stuff. And so they, they know that they should take a haircut on their valuations or their expectations. Um, but they look at these big public companies that have dropped by 70, 80, 90%. And it's like, well, we were never that far ahead of our skis. And so we mm. should expect, what, you know, a 10, 15, 20% drop in our valuation? but vcs are benchmarking the size of their outcomes to those large public companies that have seen 80 90% reductions in, in right values. and so they're realizing like oh if i invest at a billion dollar valuation for a series a company that has less than 5 million of revenue if i get into that valuation and i'm hoping for let's call it a 5x return right? it's still it's still at an early stage even though a billion dollar valuation is more than amazon went public for in 1997 right um, but they're thinking, well, crap, if I look at the largest company in this category, and they have hundreds of millions of dollars of revenue, and they're only worth two and a half, three billion a half, $3 billion, I can't make my return work. And so I won't do the deal at all. Like, I just can't, I can't. Right, of the existence of public companies that were trading at 50 times revenue, that's what allowed investors to be so haphazard. With
1: mm, interesting. Okay.
0: So that's like the number one thing, right? It's just this misalignment of expectations. Yep. The second piece of it is, is sort of understanding how that translates into what a down round is and like the, the sort of philosophy behind it. Because this is another aspect that I think founders to some extent get wrong, right? They, they think that there will always be a market for their stock and their company. Mm-hmm. And that comes from this idea that, like, that's, that's effectively how public markets work for the most part, right? Even if it's penny stocks have some demand for their stock because yep. somebody's holding it, right? Um, and so for public companies, there's this appetite and, you know, the, when the value is low, it actually increases demand, right? If somebody's stock price goes down, it actually increases the likelihood that somebody will want that stock because- Right, there's
1: an inverse relation in terms of normal demand supply.
0: yeah, Exactly. Venture markets, private markets don't have that. Um, like in private markets, the lack of initial demand becomes this like self-fulfilling prophecy. So the more VCs who initially say no, it actually increases the odds that other VCs will say no. So mm-hmm. there isn't really an easy equilibrium that can be reached if every investor sees this as like, "I this is something I can't do. And so that's why you need to think about your business as this like risk reward calculation. Like why should this investor want stock in your company? What is the upside for them? And if there isn't upside, they won't do it. It's not like there's not enough upside until you get down to the investors that are so bad that they have they're okay with tiny upside. It's like, no, like nobody will do it. And so understanding those dynamics of of sort of down rounds and investor appetite and stuff like that, that also translates into like, okay, if I'm gonna step back and I'm gonna evaluate my business as this risk reward equation of like what is the upside? What are the risks that my business has? And it comes down to the sort of third and fourth principle, which is number, you know, the third one is effectively these companies that just continue to burn atrocious amounts of money. And then eventually that leads to layoffs, right? And, And they have to deal with that. And so one of the frameworks I use a lot is I talk a lot about every business represents an economic engine. Every company has inputs and outputs, whether it's cash, whether it's people, you know, man hours, whatever. Uh, IP, whatever it is, and it, there's a lot of complex inputs and outputs around burn. And if you get those wrong, that's what translates into layoffs. Is you say, "Oh crap, we've miscalculated how much leeway we have." Um, and this past week, I wrote this this piece about dependencies, yeah, and how yep. controlling your own destiny is a function of introducing as few dependencies as possible. To your business. But if you just assume as a founder that you can keep burning, keep growing, keep hiring, keep running out of money, and eventually there will be a pot of VCs at the end of the rainbow waiting to give you money, like it's a gamble. Like maybe, like maybe yeah. that works out, but it's certainly a gamble, especially in a world right now where there's sort of that that likelihood of there being cash is much lower than it's been in years. Um, you're creating a business that is dependent on cash. Like it cannot exist as a going entity without that cash infusion. And that's just layers of risk and dependencies that that put you in danger. And so I think a lot of these companies are not going to recognize that they need to use their resources to get themselves to a point where they're not as at much risk to all of these different aspects.
1: Right. And so if I was a founder in this specific situation right now where I'm facing perhaps a flat round and down round given the, you know, realities of our situation right now, how would you, or like what piece of advice would you give them in terms of managing this whole kind of process? Cause um, I recently spoke with Brian Hollins of collide and his viewpoint on this is like, this is just a blimp on kind of the long-term scope of this. So if you are like truly looking at this from a long-term perspective, there is still markup you can make in the future, depending on how like how you take advantage of this current situation that you're in.
0: The advice that I'd give to folks is kind of what I said about like adopting that investor mindset and understanding the upside case and like and like you know your business better than anybody, and so you really need to articulate that upside case and what it is, right? And I agree, I think that in many cases, especially with certain companies. There are companies that, and this is a lot of you know my perspective, not always necessarily the view of contrary, but from my perspective, there are a lot of companies that have I think have been oversold, right? People are there are phenomenal businesses that have dropped dramatically, and, and I, I think are uh, it's sort of an overreaction, right? And so I, I agree with that point that this is sort of this this moment in time where everybody's panicking, and it doesn't mean that this is where things stay, yeah, but. If you look at, like, this is what's crazy to me is that it just, it only took two years for us to like collectively lose our minds. And so if you look at the the real blip was the last two years, right? Like yeah. if you look at sort of the like normal trend line evaluations, the last two years was insane. Mm-hmm. We are sort of back. we're again, like I said, we're we're sort of below norm, but we're coming back and we've had a couple of good weeks. And, and I think that we're sort of getting back on track. Yep. Yep. But it would be a mistake. Like Bill Gurley has this great line about, we we have to stop talking about things as cheap relative to what they were. Those valuations don't matter. Like they're not a sort of line, like a, a point in the story. They are an anomaly that should be cut off and ignored. Right, Not cheap relative to that. You have to understand a different sort of baseline. And so when I talk to founders, I think the advice that I have is like, okay, be pragmatic. Like maybe it's not, you know, for like the average software company is trading at 4 or 5 times forward revenue. Maybe it's 10 times. Like that it's such an arbitrary number, but like that's the number people often come back to is like okay. best companies will trade at 10 times forward revenue. Okay, make me the case. I'm going to invest right now. The average hold time for a venture fund is 5 to 8 years depending on if you're getting in at the seed stage versus the B or C or whatever. But for especially for these later stage rounds, it's like 5 years is about as much as these companies will underwrite. Often it's longer but they have to make a case for what's going to happen over the next 5 years. And so as a founder you need to make the case of like okay well what do you like what do you generally expect you can grow at? And I don't think you need false precision of like oh here's the the sort of two decimal point gross margin we're going to have in 2027. Like it doesn't need to be false precision but it's like in general I think that we can get to what 100 million 200 million of revenue. You trade it two t- at, at 10 times or whatever, right? That's that's a billion 2 billion dollar company. Like if you can't honestly make the case for why you can be this exceptional thing, yeah, it is harder for the investors to make that case to themselves. A lot of times they're going to get it wrong, right? And they're going to undershoot it. But in a moment like this, where everybody's sort of panicking, the best thing that you can do is to try and articulate very clearly why this can be such a big business. And there are aspects where people will say things like, yeah, but here's what we're going to do with our core business. We're also going to add on payment yeah. payments, and payments. We're going to launch new modules. We're going to do this and that. And it's like, great. Investors are going to discount a lot of that stuff, but that at least helps them get to a benchmark of like, oh, if this could be a multi-product, multi-geo, multi-business model company platform, yeah. then even if I discount everything else outside of the core business by 75%, that's still a 25% bump from where you would be.
1: Mm-hmm. And like,
0: You need to articulate that vision of what your company can be.
1: Yeah. So again, it comes back to kind of aligning incentives on both ends and understanding, you know, VCs have their own incentives that they have to kind of, you know, work with. And then founders obviously need capital to grow. And so what's the story that you're going to articulate to convince a VC that the there's alignment, right? So especially in this environment. So um, in the article, you also sp- spoke about layoffs, right? Which we've seen quite a bit of and. You know, surprisingly, even at the large tech companies, um, you know, minus Apple. Uh, but what are your thoughts on the ultimate kind of maybe downstream impacts of these layoffs? Because I'm I'm starting to hear a lot of like uh, chatter around, you know, engineering um, compensations coming down. Um, so, you know, as you mentioned, two years, last couple years, it's kind of a blimp, right? It's a deviation from the norm per se. So what what are your thoughts on the impact of that?
0: Yeah, I think that there are two aspects of this, and the first is just in general, like what what impact will this have on on market and labor markets as a whole, and then when you when you drill into like what does this mean for salaries for engineering folks and things like that? I think the broader impact that I see, and I've referenced this idea there's a couple of investors that have written about stuff like this where. You know, in the sort of 2008, 2009 times, this this sort of um, I thread, this idea came hmm. up over and over again, where in in boom times, when everything's going great, you might have three super sharp people, yep. and with each, go start their own companies. And um, some would succeed, some would fail, whatever. In bust times, when stuff is really tough, those three people would probably get together and start one company and be better for it, right? I do think that we are going to see a lot of that, where there is just a lot of like, hey, like we need to really like, consolidate resources. There's not going to be enough for everybody, and so let's increase our chances together. I also think that in many ways, these layoffs have sort of broken the facade of big tech job security, mm-hmm. and I think that that will actually lead to a bifurcation. I think there are some people who really all they wanted in the first place was job security. They wanted yeah. a comfortable, you know, comfortable working environment, whatever, and so they actually might leave tech. Um, They might go get a tech job at a non-tech company because what they want is security. They don't want the sort of innovation and cutting edge stuff. Got it. Um, But then the other sort of bifurcation of people are going to be recognizing, well, crap. If I could lose my job anyways, right? Like, why not start something or go join something that I'm actually super excited about? Because there's risk in everything that we do, right? So it'll sort of change their their appetite for risk or the way they they calculate risk. And how that translates specifically into engineering. Um, and if you look at a lot of the layoffs, like it's actually what is more instructive is if you look at where the cuts came, if you can get some perspective, it doesn't always announce it. But you look at things like Microsoft, I think, cutting their whole like meta reality team. Yeah, or, yeah. VR stuff like that, that speaks volumes, even more so than laying off 11,000 people in general. But it's like those are specific strategic decisions that they're making at, at that level and what that means for them in the future, of what they're going to do in that space. Who knows? But that's, that's something you can learn from. On the engineering side, I think there's even more than just layoffs. I think there's a lot of forces at play, right? Like, I think a lot in the future, certain skills will certainly be more valuable than others. And I, I think it's not what everybody expects. Like, for a long time, it was like, anybody who can code is good. Anybody who can't, TBD, we'll figure it out okay. for you. But it's like, well, hey, AI is kind of coming for everybody. Like, there's yeah. so many different aspects of the job. And so when I think about it, I think that it is more so a question of um, where is there the most value that is the most difficult to replicate, whether replicate by machines or replicate in someone else. Right? That's the whole idea of supply and demand in labor markets: is how difficult would it be to replace this person with their particular skill set? And so when I look at what's happening, I think things like you know front end dev work is certainly a more at risk because there's so much data to understand. And then to replicate, when you look at things like um, Copilot and, and sort of like code completion and stuff, a lot of that is based on the more simple sort of feature des- like building and stuff like that versus like complex backend systems that require a lot of optimization. Those are much more difficult to just like have AI do, right? Because it's,
1: yeah. it's yeah. more
0: unique to your situation and your needs and your load times or whatever. And so I think that's a component of it. I think there's also this aspect that like design will increasingly become important. And I think that the sort of differentiation of like, how does a product feel is becoming more important because we're all spending so much more time interacting with digital products. And for Contra Research, just last week, we released this deep dive on sort of the world of design and thinking about uh, Canva and Adobe and Figma and all these different things. And there's sort of this like spectrum of professional designers looking for more flexible tools. Well, also you have the rise of this sort of citizen designer, right? Of somebody Mm -hmm. who's using the, who wants to tell stories visually, but isn't necessarily a professional designer. And I think that those aspects, going back to this idea that storytelling kind of rules the world, I think those skills will be more important. So the more effectively that you can communicate visually and articulate interesting ideas, those will continue to be valuable. If you don't have those things, you will continue to be replaceable, which is tough.
1: Right. It's almost like the soft skills in today's environment are becoming much more valuable in a sense versus, say, the hard skills, because some of the hard skills are being replaced by, you know, AI, computer related stuff, right? So I don't really need maybe a physical designer anymore. I can use this like low-code tool to perhaps produce something versus it's very hard for maybe AI to... You know communicate a story tell and stuff like that in a personal way that a human can right so I actually really agree with your point there, and you know that really brings up brings me to something I've been really really fascinated about and trying to research a lot more about is the labor market that relates to gen Zs you know there's a lot of news about gen Zs being pretty frisky around kind of their employee employers and kind of the relationships that they have so do you have an opinion on how corporate America perhaps or you know, let's just say corporate anything, uh, can work towards establishing a better relationship with Gen Zs, right? Because we know there's going to be a huge influx of talent, but there's obviously strong challenges with retention, engagement, and productivity.
0: Yeah. Um, one of my favorites, so my good friend Rex Woodbury, mm-hmm. uh, writes the digital native. I, I kind of uh, joke that he is my Gen Z whisperer. Yeah. But- I look to him to explain things to me as as an old man with three kids that yeah, I am yeah. not gonna get as well. Um, but I think like the first thing is there's sort of always this element of generations misunderstanding each other. And um, I don't really remember growing up like feeling like there was like such a stark difference between like, you know, teenagers and kids in o- older high school, college, whatever. Like it didn't feel that different there, but there was a difference between like kids of the nineties and kids of the eighties and stuff like that. Like it was younger. Yeah. Were significant that way but now it's like down to the like within a couple of like we could be a couple of years apart and we have very different experiences right largely around technology right technology is exactly that but i think when i think about these things yeah I, you know that sort of define gen z in many ways where it's like you know skepticism of capitalism higher cost of living um, spending more time online uh you know all these different aspects i think of it like i don't I don't think that younger people hate technology by any means, right? It's like they're embracing it wholeheartedly. They want to explore and they do things. There's a lot more nuance to it. And and there's a lot more nuance in like the technology itself. Like I don't Mm -hmm. know if it was a good place. Uh, Yeah,
1: yeah. I've seen a couple episodes.
0: Yeah. So main idea is this idea that a bunch of people die and they, they find out that no one has gone to heaven in like 500 years, like the good plates in like 500 years. Because you get ranked, your whole life gets ranked on a scoring point, where if you do something good, you get a certain number of points. If you do something bad, you get a certain number of negative points. But now it's like, if I just decide to eat a certain meal, it's like, I am supporting unfair labor practices and exploitation in developing countries and all these aspects of pesticides. The world has become so much more nuanced. And I think that that is being reflected in sort of like the rising generation Um like, for example, like younger people don't hate iPhones, but they hate sweatshops and they hate yeah. acts on their mental health and dopamine addictions, right? And online bullying and things like that. Like they hate those underlying things. And then they see the delivery mechanisms of those things and they they sort of take it out on them, right? So whether it is their employer, whether it is their their technology, the companies, the brands they support, the politicians that they like, whatever, they're looking for somebody so again, going back to this idea that like everything is largely or is like increasingly becoming dictated by vibes, yeah. they are looking for a message that they vibe with, and that vibe cannot be exploitation. like that vibe cannot be injustice. like there's so many aspects that people are looking for, and I totally buy into that. I think that the the there's this other piece I'm working on that I think will be a little bit more controversial and I, I want to handle it very delicately. But it's basically this idea of like the uh, I've been calling it the renaissance of rise and grain culture. Okay. yeah, Um, it's spicy. It's spicy. But like I I do think that there is, again, going back to this idea of nuance, I think that there is nuance in finding the balance between I also don't want to have again, I've got three kids. I've got a family like I'm making choices based on optimizing for my family and my mental health and things like that. I don't want to have bad mental health. But I do think that there are things in life worth working hard for, um, that there are injustices that you can't just be mad about. You have to work to change and restructure. Like I think that there is more nuance than just saying like I hate that thing, and then I'm good. Like I said, I hate that thing, and I'm just going to live my life as though I hate that thing. And it's like, well, then change. Like what? What else should we? What other things should we? Yeah. Do? So much complexity in the world. Yeah. That like more and more people are going to need to pick a thing they want to accomplish in life, right? Because you can't simultaneously say, I just want to make as much money as possible, live my own life, don't hurt anybody else, just do your own thing, but then also be outraged by the way the world is. It's like, well, then work hard to change the world. And I think there are yeah. a ton of people, Gen Z, it's not an age thing, it's certain personalities and stuff. There are a ton of people of all ages who adopt that mentality. But I think that there's more nuance in finding the balance between working hard towards things that matter while also trying to structure a world that doesn't take advantage of as many people and doesn't exploit people and doesn't, is willing in some cases to sacrifice profit in favor of prosperity, right?
1: Yeah. And we can definitely get into this whole rabbit hole of, you know, developing countries not going to be doing the same thing as Western countries uh, because they weren't enabled the same way that we were, right? We exploited everything and now they're trying to get to the same level, right? So there's going to be different perceptions and kind of I'd say, this morality across different cultures, different countries. And I, yeah, so we can get into this whole rabbit hole, but we'll we'll, we'll stop it there and I'll wait for your uh, article. I, I, want, I really want to read that. That sounds interesting. Um, so, you know, that's kind of like, I, I'd say, like the hard part of the podcast. Now, what I like to do is kind of like maybe open up with some personal experiences that you've had and maybe ask you some personal questions. Um, so, you know, one highlight, I'd say, most VCs have is, you know, or tech professionals, I should say, is going on 20 VC. So you had the chance to talk to Harry. What, what was that experience like and any takeaways that you got from him?
0: Yeah, Harry is a great guy and he's super fun to enjoy, especially like he and I has, you know, bandied back and forth on Twitter and stuff so like that and, and traded ideas. And I've mentioned him in a couple of my articles, some of his posts and stuff. So he's a great guy. I love chatting with him. It's funny, you know, as I think about this question um, and this might, this might also be a little bit spicy my takeaway was actually something that I wish was different. Mm -hmm. And spending time with him was, is what sort of made me realize it. So it's not a criticism of him. I think he's phenomenal. Uh, His show is great. Like it's a huge resource, but like, it made me reflect on the experience of like creating things. Cause again, I have my, my newsletter, right. And my newsletter is searchable, right. Oftentimes I'll be like, I have written about you know, whatever, St. Francis of Assisi or whatever. And I can go back and just search the name and I'm like, boom, that's the article. Here's the section. Yep, I'm going to pull that out, put it in here. Uh, I'm a big like note-taking nerd. And so I'm constantly thinking about the sort of like Lego blocks of ideas and thoughts and like how they go together and mixing and matching my, my ideas and things like those. And I found, I have found that with podcasts and YouTube videos and stuff, there's so much information density.
1: Absolutely, um,
0: yeah. But it's like, it's so inaccessible, right? Like when you don't have transcripts, you don't have the ability to search through things or whatever, like that's one of the things that the sort of onslaught of, of AI tools over the last year or so that I have loved is I'm constantly playing with like YouTube and podcast like transcribers, mm-hmm. synthesizers and summaries and like I can ask questions of it. Seeing in a certain podcast or whatever, and um, and I love what like Patrick O'Shaughnessy is doing with Colossus or with Colossus, um, where he's like trying to unlock this goodness that he's creating. Right, he's trying to make this platform where he can point you to different things. There's mm-hmm. trans news that's searchable by keyword, and um, you know there's a ton more that you can do. But it just made me reflect on like I, I love talking to Harry, and we jammed on a bunch of different things, and a lot of them I wanted to explore. And like, I was the one who said them and I had to go back in and like scrub through and be like, wait, how did I think about that? Oh, let's take that and turn it into a piece or whatever. Like that actually talking to him became my, uh, I call it the Blackstone of innovation. That was one of my pieces a few months ago. Right. That piece, like I have been thinking about that idea for a long time. I had not clearly articulated it well enough to write about it until I chatted with him about it. Hmm then I could write that piece. And that's one of my more popular pieces that I've ever had, right? So I, I love the process of getting to jam like this, chat about stuff and and things like that. But so much of that is inaccessible that it, it was just fascinating for me to think about.
1: Yeah, hopefully we can spur some uh, thought uh, to yeah. inspire some future writing for through this podcast as well. But yeah, we've been trying to experiment with a lot more AI tools. I know uh, a lot of our stuff is run through Descript, which has been wonderful, uh, really helpful. But there's a lot of other tools out there that we're trying to, you know, again, I, I really like the thing that you mentioned, trying to digest such a long form of content and try to find specific things. I mean, sure, we tag specific timings and stuff like that through the podcast, but it's not in a form where it's really digestible. Um, So, you know, trying to make that easier where we're trying to explore those options. And yeah, glad you kind of put that in my brain again, because I uh, got a little lazy with that stuff. Uh and so, you know, let me ask you about this. What are you most proud about in your life up till now? And then on the flip side, what is your biggest regret?
0: It's a pretty easy the, the thing I'm most proud of is a pretty easy answer. So like I said, I have three kids. And yeah. I have a six year old named Dax, a three year old named Jed, and then an almost one year old named Eve. Those are my those are my kids. Yeah and i gotta tell you like i there's this whole it's funny too there's almost like a culture war in itself of people with kids and without kids and is it lazy to not have kids is it living your best life to not have kids for a while whatever like all this back and forth i have no opinions on like when like everybody it's a different unique decision i had uh so i had my uh, i started i got married when i was you know 22 and right. i got married pretty early had kids pretty early um and I got to tell you, there is nothing more satisfying than, you know, we read with our kids all the time and, and try and help them understand things and try and talk to them like they understand what we're talking about, not sort of, biggies. enough. And my son is now reading exceptionally well and can understand concepts. And he'll come to us and ask us like questions about these words. And it's like, where did you even learn that word? Like,
1: yeah, yeah.
0: An opportunity to be able to reflect on like, we enabled this kid to take in information and now he's doing something with it. And that is, I mean, by far, you know, one of the things that I am most proud of. And I think that when I think about my biggest regrets, I think that it, it probably looking back, it is times when I felt something very strongly mm-hmm. and didn't act on it because okay. I was trying to be very risk conscious. Um, and so there are, you know, whether it's like, Companies I look back and I think, man there there was a part of me that thought I should just go work for that company and yeah. I didn't want to be safe and it was still early days and those things have done really well or whatever there's investments that I wanted to make that I didn't make there's things in my life you know whether it's hobbies or activities or moving somewhere or whatever that I wanted to do that I didn't do because I was taking into account risks and and I regret that like I wish I could go back and sort of recognize the same thing I've talked about in some of my writing which is like there's risks everywhere whether you yeah. take it it's safe or not and so you might as well risk things in in pursuit of things that you are passionate about.
1: Yeah. And for me, like risk is a catalyst for learning. And uh, that's kind of the approach that I take with a lot of things, right? So I had a lot of friends uh, tell me that this uh, podcast isn't, you know, it's just a waste of time and all that. I'm 100, almost 100 episodes in. I've learned so much. It's like an MBA, essentially. Um, and selfishly, uh, I get to spend time with some of the smartest folks. Uh, and learn from them. So it's been one of the most fruitful experiences, and it's just taking that risk of time, which I obviously I could have spent somewhere else. But it's something I've learned that I'm really passionate about. And there's also soft skills that come out of it in terms of interviewing and learning how to actually outreach uh, and finding individuals. Right. So that's that's kind of what I draw on as well. So I'm um, gonna finish the podcast off with a very quick lightning round. So. Uh, four questions. You have a couple an- uh, seconds to answer each one. So let me know when you're ready. Uh, I'm ready to go. All right. Sweet. Favorite book of all time? I struggle with this question so much. I'm going to
0: talk fast, like my seconds. It is like asking, like, which of my favorite child? Like, I have different books for different things, different jobs. Right. you wrote it down to three. Um, I read the biography of John Quincy Adams, which is such a weird book, but okay. the dude is like such an enigma. And he wrote like journals that are basically the only reason we have a lot of knowledge of the early sort of American experiments. Right. And I love journal writing and I love that. I'm reading Brandon, Sanders- Brandon Sanderson's Stormlight Archive, which is like okay. such an experiment in like human psychology and experience. And Interesting. Stuff. And then obviously I'm a religious guy. So the Book of Mormon and the Bible, like those are constantly part of my, my uh, repertoire.
1: Yeah. No, cool. Uh, if you could have dinner with one person, dead or alive. Who would that be?
0: Um. So I am a, I am a massive fanboy of Walter Isaacson. Okay. And I would love to sit down with him. And I feel like it's kind of a cheat code in this question. Yeah. Like, he has spent so much time with other people that could be on that list. I'd like to be able to understand him and how he's gotten into the minds of these great people. And I think that would be such an awesome conversation.
1: Very rewarding. Cool. The technology that you're most excited about that is not generative AI. <laughs> yeah.
0: Um, so the thing I am spending the most time thinking about right now is actually, and this surprises people sometimes, and um, I think that there is still a lot of interesting opportunities in the world of cloud security. So basically you think about like everything is moving to the cloud. We're still way earlier in that transition than we think. And cloud security giants, Wiz, and Lacework and these folks, they've done a great job of sort of taking the old paradigm and moving it into the cloud where it's basically scanning and creating alerts. But I think there is still so much intelligence to be able to understand. And it's basically like all of the physical security infrastructure, which is literally trillions of dollars. Yeah. Online and understanding the value of the things we have online is going to be massive. And so I've been spending a ton of time on that. We're going to put out a contrary research deep dive on it next month. i Tell us about that space.
1: Cool. And last question, controversial for most folks. Do you like pineapple on your pizza? Yes or no?
0: Um, I am a 100% pineapple pizza guy. Okay, cool, cool. I don't care who knows. I've been criticized <laughs> personal level and I don't care
1: I'll just keep doing yeah. it maybe we got to do a research piece on that one too but uh, <laughs> uh yeah thanks so much for doing this Kyle any last words for our audience and maybe where they can find you yeah
0: um I'd say you know my writing is the number one place to get inside my head um so investing 101 on Substack and then at TW Harrison 13 on Twitter I'm pretty active much to my wife's chagrin on Twitter <laughs> so you can always reach me there